This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Lord Cameron, who's just been made a Lord and was our former Prime Minister and has been brought back for a, a farewell tour, went out on a limb on his own, insists that the Palestinians should be rewarded for their terrorism by creating a two-state solution in the name of peace in the Middle East. I presume, Itamar, you'd be saying, what are you talking about, Lord Cameron? Giving them a state where they can then fly in armaments that they want, fly in chemical weapons that they want, fly in things from Iran. That, I mean, you're, you're, you're guaranteeing... Um, not just thousands like we just had now, over a thousand dead Israelis. You're guaranteeing war for another uh, another generation or two, and you're guaranteeing that Israel's going to have what we did in Gaza. We'll end up having to do throughout all the cities of the West Bank. Britain's Foreign Secretary Lord Cameron stuns followers of the Middle East by declaring the British government was considering formal recognition of a state of Palestine, including through the UN. This would be tantamount to rewarding terrorism with statehood. And as our guest today, Itamar Marcus of Palestinian Media Watch tells us, would condemn Israel to a war on its borders with Judea and Samaria for another generation. Lord Cameron sparked a backlash from his own party's MPs and quickly was slapped down by Downing Street, who said his speech was informal. They replied that UK policy remains the removal of Hamas from Gaza, a Palestinian-led government in Gaza and the West Bank, a concrete plan to reform and support the Palestinian Authority, a reconstruction plan for Gaza, and a two-state solution, whatever that is. But Lord Cameron's not alone. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken ordered elements within the Biden administration to examine American and international recognition of a state of Palestine the day after. Now that's ridiculous. Why? Because it involves recognizing a state that has no physical form and no boundaries. It would remove at a stroke the obligation for the Palestinian Arabs to agree to live in peace alongside Israel. Instead, incentivizing them still further to reject Israel's right to exist. How exactly would such a state be demilitarized? Who'd ensure it had no access to weaponry that could threaten Israeli civilians? What exactly does the US mean by real security guarantees for Israel? It raises more questions than answers. And we can discount the United Nations as a serious and honest broker for a start. Real security guarantees like UN Resolution 1701 in 2006, the one that called for the area between the Israel-Lebanon border and the Latani River to be cleared of all armed forces other than the Lebanese army and UN peacekeepers. The area where Hezbollah has 150,000 rockets pointed at Israel, which it could unleash at any time, wreaking devastation on Tel Aviv, Haifa and everywhere in between. And from where Israel firefights daily skirmishes with Hezbollah? And finally, the truth about UNRWA is coming out. Broad daylights exposed the UN agency with building Palestinian refugeeism. Twelve members of UNRWA took part in the 7th of October attacks, which killed 1,200 people. And 15 states announced the suspension of funding to UNRWA. The UK and the USA were joined by Austria, Estonia, 
Finland, Germany, Italy, Latvia, Lithuania, Netherlands, Romania, Sweden, Iceland, Japan, and Australia. And together, these states, as well as the European Union, were collectively donating approximately $500 million annually. UNRWA is a front for the Hamas terror state in Gaza. There's absolutely no getting away from that. And Hillel Neuer, executive director of UN Watch, delivered this withering testimony to the US Congress. 1,200 UNRWA employees in Gaza are part of Hamas or Islamic Jihad, meaning actual operatives within the political and military organizations. Finally, an estimated 6,000 UNRWA employees, being half of the workforce in Gaza, have close family members in these terrorist organizations. Now, UNRWA's top donors, the United States, Germany, Britain, Canada, and many others, have just announced they're freezing funds. Now, accordingly, I've come here from Geneva to bring before the Congress our case against UNRWA. I've come here to ask the Congress of the United States, which is the largest donor to UNRWA at over $300 million a year, to not just suspend, but to end the funding for good and to take the lead in dissolving an organization that is riddled with incitement to hate, involvement in terrorism, and the perpetuation of war. Members of the committee will find all of the evidence that I present here on our website at unwatch.org under the case against UNRWA. Now, on Friday, Secretary General Guterres announced that he was, quote, horrified to learn that members of his UNRWA staff were implicated in terrorism. Members of the committee, I'm here to bear witness and testify that Secretary General Guterres the head of UNRWA, Philippe Lazzarini, their predecessors, their senior colleagues, could not possibly have been shocked that UNRWA employees are implicated in terrorism. Because for the past nine years, and Chairman Smith knows this very well because he's been on this issue and he's invited me to testify, we've been uncovering, publishing, and submitting to the UN, to UNRWA, evidence of widespread and systematic incitement to jihadi terrorism, the praise of Nazi leader Adolf Hitler, calls to slaughter Jews, on the part of UNRWA teachers, school principals, and other employees. These reports uh, range from 10 to 200 pages. For example, just in November, we sent a report on 20 teachers who celebrated the October 7th massacre. In March, together with Impact SE, we identified 133 UNRWA teachers and staff who promoted hate and violence in social media. In June 2022, we released a report called UNRWA's Teachers of Hate and included the following Facebook post by Elham Mansour, quote, an UNRWA teacher, quote, by Allah, Anyone who can kill and slaughter any Zionist and Israeli criminal and doesn't do so doesn't deserve to live. Kill them and pursue them everywhere. They are the greatest enemy. All Israel deserves is death. This is an UNRWA teacher statement on Facebook. We sent it to the UN. They did nothing. We sent them reports in 2021, 2019, 2017, 2015 numerous reports. They never contacted us for information. They refused our repeated written requests to meet to discuss the problem. They cannot say they didn't know. Mr. Guterres knew. The head of the UNRWA knew, the, the United Nations knew, they simply chose not to act. But it's much worse than that. From the beginning, their response to our reports was to attack us for doing the work they failed to do. If, if we look at Christopher Gunnis, the longtime UNRWA spokesman, he's now come back as a surrogate giving interviews in Al Jazeera. He said on Twitter the following in response to our reports, quote, appeal to journalists, please don't turn UN Watch baseless allegations about anti-Semitism into a he said, she said story. It's a non-story. Quote, UN Watch makes a fool of itself again. Credibility dead in the water. Will anyone believe them again? Quote, interested, he's interested, to find out more about UN Watch's political and financial affiliations since its establishment. Can anyone advise? This was their response to smear the messenger 
They are not interested in finding out the root problem of incitement to terrorism. In June 2022, when they had to suspend six out of ten of their employees under pressure from the U.S., UNRWA Deputy Commissioner General Lenny Stenseth, who's now the Director General of the Norwegian Foreign Ministry, she informed donor states and put it on her website that, quote, the real intent of UN Watch, my organization, is, quote, to destroy and not build, and to invite conflict, not build a lasting peace. Now, the U.S. and other donors have asked UNRWA to investigate and to ensure accountability. I can tell you, for a decade, UNRWA has shown itself to be unwilling, unable, and unfit. Founded in 1949, UNRWA has been a long-standing key to ensuring Palestinians are kept in perpetual refugee status, generation after generation, as pawns against the Jewish state. UNRWA and the issue of Palestinian refugees is not marginal to the Israel-Palestinian conflict or one of many important issues. It is the issue. And without it, the conflict can't be understood. Without addressing it, the conflict cannot be resolved, says friend of Johnny Gould's Jewish state, Dr. Enat Wilf. The idea that the Palestinians were intergenerational refugees possessing a right of return that supersedes Israeli sovereignty to settle in Israel became the most deeply held markers of the Palestinian identity and its national ethos. And Palestinians always clearly say that UNRWA means return, but Westsplainers keep saying it's for aid. UNRWA exists only for the purpose of perpetuating refugeeism until that day of return and UNRWA needs to be dismantled and defunded precisely to end that fiction, she says. So where to from here? This is UNRWA, the worst thing that ever happened to the Palestinians, says today's guest, Itamar Marcus. He's the founder and director of Palestinian Media Watch, founded in 1996 to capture the mood of the Palestinian world, they started reading the papers and found that school books and children's programs indoctrinated children in Jew hate. The Fatah children's magazine aged 6 to 15, Fatah's goal was to destroy Israel. Fatah is a national liberation movement. Its goal is to liberate Palestine that was stolen by the colonialist and aggressive Zionist movement, that is to say Israel's foundation in 1948. And as Chaviv Retigur, Senior Times of Israel columnist, told me a couple of episodes back, the Palestinians believe the state of Israel is dislodgeable. It can be removed. The Palestinian political world has a story about us. But the foundation of the story is that we are dislodgeable. We are removable. We are of a type, and the type changes. Sometimes we're imperialists, sometimes we're colonialists, sometimes we're crusaders, in Hamas's more Islamic language. We are a thing that is, in, at its depth, at its core, artificial, and therefore not sustainable, and therefore doomed to fail, and therefore all uh, peace, all um, acceptance of Israel is a kind of collaboration. It is a, it is a violation of, of the basic faith that there is a just God overseeing a just arc to history, and so it is also an act of heresy. There are different discourses that have d different ways of saying that and different extents, and some are secularized and some are much more religious. But nevertheless, that is the story of the Palestinians about us. 
75% of Palestinians support the Hamas October the 7th attack and 60% extremely support. 98% feel a sense of pride as a Palestinian, 94% to a great extent. Itamar concludes the PA is the source of the problem and the PA cannot be part of the solution. Instead, Europe, the UK, the US, with Abraham Accords countries, together with local clan leadership, accepts responsibility for governing and education. With Fatah and the PA security forces so deeply involved in terror in Judea and Samaria, empowering them to rule Gaza after Israel has destroyed the terror infrastructures is inconceivable to Israelis. And so Israel will have to be responsible for security for the foreseeable future. This is Itamar Marcus, founder and director of Palestinian Media Watch. Itamar Marcus, welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Pleasure to be with you. You have just produced an incredibly detailed report on UNRWA, and you've called your document the worst thing that ever happened to the Palestinians. Can you please elaborate on that as the world is coming to terms and understanding what UNRWA is really about? So there are two, there are two different sides to UNRWA. Uh, first of all, which has, get a lot of, has had a lot of exposure recently, and that is that they've been very much involved in terror, hiding terrorists. Um, uh, hundreds of their workers, if not more, have been involved with Hamas. Uh, their education has been breeding ground for terrorists. But what I'm focusing on is something even more than that. It's even if they weren't terrorists, it's the worst thing that ever happened to Palestinians. Because let's just look at the numbers over here. In, in 1948, there were 750,000 refugees. In 2024, there are 5,900,000. The UNRWA is not intended to solve the refugee problem. It's intended to perpetuate the, the refugee problem. I just want to compare this to the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, which was, uh, which was established in 1950 after World War II to deal with all the refugees from World War II. And if you look on their website, they write that they have helped over 50 million refugees successfully restart their lives. So the UN High Commission was successful in rehabilitating 50 million refugees, and the Palestinian Authority couldn't do it. I'm sorry, the UNRWA couldn't deal with 750,000, and it turned them into almost 6 million. And that's why UNRWA is the worst thing that ever happened, because all of these, just about 6 million, because most of the original people have died already. In other words, 6 million people were born into the prison of refugee status. A person has a right to be born free. A child doesn't have a right. It should not be born into a status of refugee. He should be born free. And UNRWA literally has imprisoned 6 million Palestinians. And that's why I say it's the worst thing that ever happened to Palestinians. Give them freedom. Let them be born into a life of freedom. And this idea of defining actually what a refugee is generations later must be a problem to nearly 6 million in 2024. Now, I just have to tell you how... Now, the, the Palestinian Authority is the one who is leading this. The Palestinian Authority is the one who denies Israel the right to exist, and therefore it says these refugees have to go back into, uh, into Israel proper. And just to give you an example why how absurd this is, 
the Palestinian Authority, this is according to their official statistics, they define 42% of all the residents of the West Bank and Gaza Strip as refugees. In other words, they're living in the Palestinian Authority. They're defining them as refugees, and they say 66% of the Palestinians in the, in the Gaza Strip are refugees. So how could that be? It's, it's already been independent of Israel uh, since essentially since uh, 2005. So why are they calling them? Because that's the point. The PA isn't satisfied that they live in Gaza. They're not satisfied that they live in the West Bank. They're only going to be satisfied if they inundate Israel with millions of people. And for that reason, these are political pawns. They're not refugees. They're born. And the PA says, okay, I'm going to call you a refugee because that's going to make peace with Israel impossible because ultimately we're going to destroy Israel through the refugees. I'll just show you how far the PA takes this, even endangering the lives of Palestinians. During the Syrian civil war, uh, there are refugee camps, Palestinian refugee camps in Syria. And a lot of the Syrians in the refugee camp are being killed. So Israel offered to let them come into the West Bank on the condition that you take them off the refugee poles and they're not declared refugees. Uh, And this was the statement by Abbas's spokesman, Nabil Abarodena. He said, quote, Abbas rejected the condition set by Israel that anyone who enters the territories of the, of the state of Palestine renounces the right of return to Israel, which President Abbas absolutely refuses. Abbas made them stay in Syria. And you know what happened in the end? 4,000 of those refugees were killed in the fighting because Abbas refused to let them in. Why? Because they would give up their refugee status. For him, it's more important that they die as refugees then they live as free people. That's the Palestinian Authority. Are you playing catch-up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. There isn't a fertility rate problem in Israel, um, for instance, as there, there is in, in most European countries, there is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the debts that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great, they're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from uh, journalists, and often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. And the tragedy of the people on the street in 
Judea and Samaria and Gaza is that they actually believe their leaders to a very, very large extent. You're absolutely right. The the brainwashing is unbelievable. Uh, Palestinian TV broadcast uh, an interview with a 12-year-old boy uh, on TV. This boy is, lives in a refugee camp near Ramallah. Uh, apparently his parents, I guess his grandparents, might have come from Lod. That's what they said. When they introduced this 12-year-old, they said as follows, uh, Abd al-Rahman is a 12-year-old child from Lod, He's temporarily in the refugee camp near Ramallah because he's returning to Lod. That's the way PATV introduced it. And then the boy is interviewed and he said, the Jews stole our land. I've been waiting 12 years. He was a 12-year-old. And my father, who's 40, is waiting 40 years. And my grandfather's waiting 70 years. Uh, The Jews took our land. Every day, every minute, every year, I imagine that I'm in Lod. This is the tragedy of a 12-year-old boy. Instead of the Palestinians telling this boy... You're living near Ramallah, that's the Palestinian capital for now, that'll remain probably the Palestinian capital forever. Um, um, this is your home. Get on with your life. Mm-hmm. No, they're, they're, they're creating a fic- an impossible identity by him believing he's... Now, Lod is a thriving Israeli city. There are Arabs who live in Lod. The ones who didn't run away stayed there, and there's a sizable Arab community in Lod. There's a sizable Jewish community in Lod. They live together side by side. Uh, all these years, but that boy has no place in Lod, and neither do the other thousands and thousands and thousands of descendants who left during the War of Independence. They should have been rehabilitated by the United Nations instead of being stuck in this trap. So they go on TV and they say, I've been waiting 12 years, and every minute I imagine that I'm returning to Lod. That boy doesn't deserve that. That should, His ideal, he should imagine every minute, I'm going to grow up to be a doctor. I'm going to grow up to be a lawyer. I'm going to grow up to be a journalist. I'm going to grow up and do something with my life. No, he's growing up every minute, he says, thinking about that he's going to return to Israel and turn it into Palestine. Now, Lod is also Israel's oldest city. It is the burial place of the patron saint of England, St. George. Mm. And it is a place where you say there are indigenous Arabs who live in emancipation and democratic freedom among Israeli Jews. But there have been problems in that city since 2021, haven't there? In other words, some of the Palestinian propaganda is starting to infiltrate the non-Jewish people in that city. Unfortunately, the Palestinian propaganda is very much directed uh, at Israeli Arabs. They don't want them to identify as Israeli Arabs. Uh, but I have to just tell you something, uh, an incredible statistic. Uh, after October 7th, the number of Israeli Arabs who identified as Israelis jumped some 20 or 30 percent from like 40 or 45 percent up to something like 70 percent. Um, they were so horrified by what Palestinians had done. They said, no, no, I'm not a part of that. I'm an Israeli uh, and I'm living in Israel um, many um, we had uh, Israelis also have seen how how um, how Arabs and Druze have taken a part in in this war against uh, against Hamas. Um, last week, just last week, uh, uh, a Muslim Bedouin uh, died in the war, and his father was interviewed, and he said, "My son was a proud Muslim, a proud Bedouin, and a proud Israeli." And they showed pictures of him with his Israeli flag, walking around with his Israeli He said, this is my country. I'm going to defend my country. So 
October 7th, as much as it was a trauma for Israel, it was also, in a certain sense, a trauma. So Israelis were traumatized because it was a, a one-day Holocaust, literally. Um, Israeli Arabs were traumatized because they realized that they can't have that Palestinian identity if this is what it means if it means that I'm going to be a part of this and support this and glorify it like the Palestinian Authority did and like the Hamas, then that's not me and, and the distance. So it's very interesting to see how this will play out over the long term. Israeli Arabs are already completely involved in Israeli society. If you walk into pharmacies in Israel, uh, the chances are the pharmacist who will be giving you your, your, your medications is going to be an Arab because for whatever reason they all decided that they want to go to pharmaceutical school and they were filling up all the classes. Today the pharmacists are primarily uh, Israeli Arabs. You go into some hospitals, they're heads of departments. You could have a surgeon. Um, I, re- I remember a, a tragic story of an Israeli woman who was stabbed by uh, numerous times by Israeli Arabs and she described in her experience that she was brought into the hospital for emergency life-saving surgery um, and uh, the doctor said uh, and she had just been stabbed and she sort of made a joke about this and she hears the doctor say Muhammad please pass the, <laughs> the scalpel <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But he was he was doing life saving surgery on um, her. So Israeli Arabs are, are blended through the society, and I think they are going to at some point, hopefully, make a decision. Israel Israel has been unbelievable for us. It's the only you know we have more rights here than in Jordan, Lebanon. Here, forget about the PA, Saudi Arabia, freedom to speak, freedom to criticize, freedom freedom to do what we want. And I think at some point, just like that Bedouin who served in the army and, and tragically was killed. Um, I think eventually uh, Israeli Arabs have to recognize that this is the best thing that Israel is the best thing that ever happened to them, um, and uh, that uh, that that identity as Israeli Arabs will keep growing. For us as Jews, we can see very clearly what October the seventh meant to us. It's like it's still October the seventh, not just for Israeli Jews, but for Jews everywhere. Explain to us and unpack for us what October the seventh meant for the Palestinians and the wider constituency of Islamist Muslim people? The, everybody focuses on Hamas as the perpetrators of October 7th, but we at Palestinian Media Watch, uh, we're looking for long-term uh, uh, trends, and what we found is that the Palestinian Authority um, has been incredible in, in their support um, for for what happened. So, for example, on official Palestinian TV, the day afterwards, a member of Fatah, uh, a Fatah leader, goes on TV and said, it was a morning of victory, a morning of joy, a morning of pride. Um, another Fatah leader uh, said, um, this is already a month later, when everybody knew about every bit of the, uh, of the atrocities, our people in the Gaza Strip made our heads touch the clouds. One of the top PA leaders, Jibril Rajub, uh, was interviewed and he said October 7th was an earthquake full of acts of heroism. Epics. This is one of the top PA leaders. He's calling it heroism. And this is November 26th. Everybody knew about the atrocities. So so this is the Palestinian Authority. And possibly the worst thing of all is that the Palestinian Authority Ministry of Religion, when they gave out instruction seats for, for sermons, two weeks later, uh, they told all the mosques in the Palestinian Authority to teach to teach uh, an Islamic source, a hadith, that talks about the end of time, uh, the resurrection, 
the hour of resurrection coming when Muslims fight the Jews, kill them, especially the Jews who are hiding behind rocks and trees. Mm-hmm. So the Palestinian Authority Ministry of Religion was telling its people what happened on October 7th wasn't Palestinian nationalism. This was Islam being fulfilled. This is the PA. Hamas is supposedly the religious one, the Islamist. The PA was telling its people this was fulfillment of Islam in absolutely no uncertain terms. Today, I wish to present our new report called UNRWA's Terrorgram, which I've handed to each of the members, and it's on our website, unwatch.org. In this report, we document a Telegram chat group of over 3,000 UNRWA teachers in Gaza that is replete with messages, photos, and videos cheering and celebrating the massacre of October 7th. It includes, for example, uh, Safa Mohammed al-Najjar on the morning of October 7th. She's an UNRWA teacher of computers in Gaza, an administrator of this Telegram group. She celebrated the massacre, posting videos. She praised the Hamas Mujahideen, the holy warriors, as they massacred, mutilated, and raped Israelis. UNRWA English teacher Abdallah Mejez shared a message from Hamas, Hamas urging Gazans to stay put, to ignore Israeli messages, asking them to evacuate for their safety, effectively uh, doing the work of Hamas to ask Gazans to be human shields. This is an UNRWA teacher. Abdul Karim Mejer, in our report, an elementary school teacher, celebrated the Hamas terrorists saying, quote, may Allah keep their feet steady and guide their aim. When a group member wondered what these heroes, the terrorists, as they're perpetrating the massacre, what they were brought up on, Measure replied, they imbibed jihad and resistance with their mother's milk. And a few days later, this UNRWA teacher asked um, uh, uh, to execute, he asked Hamas to execute their Israeli hostages. When Stefan Dujarek, the UN spokesman, was asked about our, our information, he replied on January 11th, quote, I mean, UN Watch, they have a track record. And I think from our end, it speaks for itself. He tried to disparage us. Um, you know, just to conclude, we have massive incitement to terrorism. You know, prominent people have said bad apples. It's a few bad apples. We're talking about 1,200 who belong to the organization, 3,000 in this group, 6,000 whose family members belong to it. This is not a problem of bad apples. It's rotten to the core. We've talked about incitement. We've talked about acts of actual violence. And finally, let's get to the core problem. And with that, I conclude the core problem of UNRWA, the very purpose of the agency, is to perpetuate the War of 1948, to send the message to Palestinians that the War of 1948 is not over. Don't use cement to build homes, hospitals, and schools here in Gaza. Use it to build hundreds of miles of terror tunnels, to tunnel into Israel, to invade Israel, to go back to what your homes are. That is the message of UNRWA. We should not be surprised what happened on October 7th, because that is the message that these Palestinians got for more than 70 years in UNRWA schools. UNRWA is a failure. We have to recognize what the Swiss foreign minister, Ignacio Cassis, said. This is a country historically that, supported, that supports the UN. He said the following, I quote, UNRWA has become part of the problem. It supplies the ammunition to continue the conflict. By supporting UNRWA, we keep the conflict alive. It's a perverse logic. And I'm here to say if the United States and other governments that fund UNRWA truly care about helping Palestinians and Israelis, it's time to put an end to this perverse logic. We're asking the Congress to take the lead in dissolving this agency. Thank you very much. So on October the 7th, from the Arab, Muslim and Palestinian point of view, this was the manifestation of Muhammad's first battles against Jewish tribes in and around what is now Saudi Arabia. 
Very likely, yes, yes. The the, the there, there's um, um, it, it was a copy. It was a copy of those attacks on the Jews. Um, there's a source in the Quran which is which in its in, in its basic message is very positive. It says that the, the children of Israel at the end of time are going to return to their land in one gathering. Uh, what does the Palestinian Authority and Hamas do? Uh, they add a commentary at the end. Why would Allah bring the Jews who he hates and who he's cursed to the land in one gathering? So they add at the end so that it will be easy to kill them. That, and, and we've heard this, we've heard the sermon, and we've heard people talking about this. So what you have is a verse in the Quran that could be the key to peace because Muslims could say, wow, Israel's here, it's a fulfillment of Islamic prophecy. Instead, the Palestinian Authority turns it into a source of genocide. Literally, a source for genocide. Um, so that's what I think they think about it more than they even think about it as something Muhammad did. This is what we are doing to bring about the uh, redemption of humanity. We're doing our part in cleansing the world of the Jews. So they believe that the Jews are dislodgeable, that this project is doomed to failure, and that in the perfect world of Allah, uh, the Jews stand in the way and ultimately we will win. And if you look at the map of the Arab world and North Africa, you will see that it has been a great success, that they have Arabized or Muslimized, whatever the term you might use, the Berbers, the Yazidis, mm. the Samaritans, the Coptics, and uh, the Jews must be next. Are we always going to fight this? Can we denazify, for want of a better word, the state of the Palestinian people and the wider Islamist Arab followers? The key is getting back to the fundamental message of a number of places in the Quran. Uh, because Palestinians are 95, 98% uh, religious, um, when their religious leaders tell them that October 7th was fulfillment of Islam, they believe that they have the obligation to kill Jews. And it wasn't just then. We've been hearing it for years. We've been hearing it for years, killing of Jews. Anyone who kills a Jew and is killed in the act is a shaheed, a martyr, holy martyr. You're getting rewards from Allah. A suicide bomber who kills 20 Israelis is a, is a martyr. So the PA is saying Allah wants killing of Jews. Since Certainly since the year 2000, when they started killing Jews in massive numbers, every one of them has been called a martyr. So, how can this be changed? Only only if some of the Muslim scholars who I've met around the world who, who, who preach that Islam recognizes Israel's right to exist, who, who interpret that verse the way it appears, as it was meant when it was written at the beginning of Islam. Uh, if we can get those leaders to create some kind of a movement, uh, to create some kind of a Muslim movement for the, for, the, for the fundamental, the literal interpretation of those verses in the Quran, that's the key to peace. Because if we can convince Palestinians that their book uh, doesn't tell them that they have to kill Jews, but, it's, but the Jews in Israel is a fulfillment of Islamic prophecy, you can live beside them in peace because this is what Allah wants. If we can get the religious leaders to make that message, that's the key to peace. Without that, it's never going to happen. And that's the key. Without that change in religious perspective, it'll never happen. Can we talk some hope here? Because the political world of interests is aligning on one side very powerfully 
towards the Jewish state. And I'm talking about the Saudi Arabians and the UAE. The UAE is probably Israel's greatest partner in peace, mm -hmm. and the Saudi Arabians are secret uh, partners in peace. And they have a great expediency to hurry up and divest from their petrochemical and oil and energy economy by 2030. Mm -hmm. And they want Israel to beat Hamas, and their billions could underwrite a new Palestinian consensus. That could happen. They have their own threats in terms of Iran and Muslim Brotherhood and Islamism. Is there actually a hope that the Arabs on the Israeli side, on the Jewish side, are the people that you've just described, that actually there is a 2.0 of Islam, there is a reformation, and it could be led by this Sunni Islamic world of the Gulf? Uh, that would be great if it were true. I, no, no. I, you mentioned the Gulf states that are very supportive of Israel. You mentioned two reasons. There's the positive reason they have to, Israel's technology can help them turn into, use all their money to build up a different industry, not oil. Uh, and they also have, uh, that's the positive. And they also have Iran, which is a threat, and Israel has a similar threat. So they, they are allied with Israel for those two very important reasons. Um, those reasons would supersede uh, Islamic law f as a temporary measure. In other words, they would supersede Islam talks about you know postponing fights, postponing wars. Muhammad did it when he wanted to conquer Mecca. He, he postponed it for two years, um, even did a false treaty uh, to pretend. So you're in, in Islam, that's a possibility. I w the only way we know for sure that the UAE um, and Saudi Arabia are really in it for the long haul is if we will hear them give their interpretations of Islam, uh, of those sources that I'm talking about. In other words, because their people have been all brought up on the other interpretations, that Israel has to be, the Jews have to be killed in order to bring about resurrection. Uh, can, if they will start saying that quote doesn't apply anymore, it happened already, doesn't, it's not relevant to today's day and age, but the, but the quote in the Quran about return, if I would hear a Saudi leader to say that, I would say, yes, we're on the way to peace with them. Right now, I'm happy they're making peace with us. Very often, you know, the Judaism um, Talmud has a, uh, a term, it says, something that, you know, wasn't necessarily intended for the right reason. If you do it long enough, eventually you'll be doing it for the right reason. The law of unintended consequences. The law, I would say unintended motivation. Because <laughs> right. here the question is motivation. You didn't intend it, but you did it anyway, and eventually you did it for the right reason. Uh, you know, you, you, you were good to your neighbor because you thought he would help you in the long run. You were good to him for so many years, you decided, you know, it's nice to be good to him, and you ended up being good to him. So that's the thing here with this. Um, it, it, you know, that's what we have to hope for. But until I hear the reinterpretation of Islam, uh, and we know that it's pragmatic and valuable and helpful to be friends of Israel. Um, until we hear the reinterpretation of Islam, it's not going to get down to the masses of the people. And that's what we need. We need the masses of the people to understand that their book, their book sees Israel as, as fulfillment of, of Islam, uh, as opposed to the extermination of Jews. When we hear that, we're on the way to peace. Itamar, Lord Cameron, who's just been made a lord,
and was our former prime minister and has been brought back for a, a farewell tour, went out on a limb on his own, a great man of judgment. He is the man who instituted Brexit and got the wrong result insists that the Palestinians should be rewarded for their terrorism by creating a two-state solution in the name of peace in the Middle East. I presume, Itamar, you'd be saying, what are you talking about, Lord Cameron? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I think that the uh, to give him the benefit of the doubt, he meets with Palestinian leaders. Uh, they lie to him the same way that... Uh, uh, for politics, they, it, it's, they've been said on TV by Palestinian leaders, we can lie for politics. Uh, they, they talk about it as, a, as within Islam. It's one of the situations you're allowed to lie for. So when you, the, the lie to him is that we just want uh, a little change in, um, you know, we just want some land and we'll make peace with Israel. That's, of course, a lie. The lie is, as, as we've been talking about, it's a fight against the Jews. It's a war against extermination of the Jews. Uh, Israel has no right to exist. It exists on Islamic land. As long as that, those are the fundamentals of the Palestinian Authority, giving them a state is giving them, uh, and not to mention the fact that, that their entire uh, military, military, uh, the Palestinian Authority military has been involved in terror, and the Palestinian Authority has glorified it. You put all those together, you give them a, a state where they can then fly in armaments that they want, fly in chemical weapons that they want, fly in things from Iran. That, I mean, you, you're, you're, you're guaranteeing... Um, not just thousands like we just had now, over a thousand dead Israelis, but you're guaranteeing war for another uh, another generation or two, and you're guaranteeing that Israel's going to have to do what we did in Gaza, we'll end up having to do throughout all the cities of the West Bank. One of the issues that we have with the Abraham Accords, and indeed the Arab world, is that it is top-down, that the man on the street hasn't quite bought into the Abraham Accords in the way that the leaders have. Um, it's a top-down society. It's a follow-the-leader society. Mm. And that's great in the Emirates at the moment for the people who are the elite. But what about the cab drivers in Abu Dhabi and Dubai? Um, hearts and minds are a key part of this. And uh, putting to one side the Palestinians where absolutely no one is on our side. Yeah. So again, I say it's the same thing. You're absolutely right. It's not going to reach down to the cab driver until he hears that the, the Quran. What he look, a lot of these people uh, have a Palestinians in particular have a much stronger Muslim identity than they have a Palestinian identity. Uh, don't know to what extent that's true, but I would believe it's true throughout the Muslim world. Their identity as Muslims is very, very strong. Uh, you know, is the major part of their identity. So. Uh, you you cannot convince them to accept Israel if they've been for centuries. Well, I wouldn't say centuries, but certainly for a hundred years. The first time that 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 uh, Quranic source was reinterpreted that we found when we checked it was a hundred years ago by the Islam, Muslim Brotherhood and um, the during the time of early period of Zionism. That's when they said, "Okay, Jews are coming to here, so we can kill them." Uh, and, and before then, it was interpreted so so at least for a hundred years they've all been learning that. Jews are coming to Israel. Israel exists in order to destroy the Jews. That doesn't conflict with the possibility of getting help from the Jews now. So we need we need the religious reformation in the UAE and in Saudi Arabia, and only then will it actually happen in the Palestinian world. Itamar Marcus, Palestinian Media Watch Director, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you very much for inviting me. 
There's a lot of competing attention for you, I do know. You're probably consuming more media than ever before to be right up to speed with what's going on in Israel and back home. I'm playing my part in the best way I can, using my journalistic and production skills to make the case for Israel via this, Johnny Gould's Jewish State, and I've done it since 2018. If you enjoy my podcast, and you'd rather it existed than not, that I kept doing it, you can support me very simply by buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash johnnygould because it really helps. Tell your friends, subscribe now if you haven't already, scroll back and look through the 120 previous episodes. And as always, thank you for listening. Johnny Gould's Jewish State is brought to you with Dangor Education.